just then people were starting to go, okay, what's going on here? We'd better contact the RCC. So with, with nightfall coming in and absolutely no idea of where to even start that search, the RCC launched a, a search and rescue effort. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back to episode 42 of the Rotary Wing Show. There is always lots happening in the helicopter world. Heli Expo is about to kick off, so expect to see lots of coverage and new announcements uh, coming out of there. And the big stories I remember from last year was the uh, Airbus Helicopters H160 reveal. There was the Air Methods, I think, signed a deal for about 200 Bell 407s, which is a you know a huge deal over 10 years. And there was lots of coverage of the AW609 Tilt Rotor with Bristow's being named as a launch customer. So I'm not sure what will be coming out of the Expo this year, but I'll be scanning the Heli Expo 16 hashtag stream on Twitter during the week, as that seems a pretty good way of getting people's impressions on the ground. If you're on Twitter, then follow the Rotary Wing Show account via at Rotary Wing Show. It's one word, no underscores, uh, for updates in between the uh, the show episodes. And if you are visiting Heli Expo and find a company giving away some good swag and freebies at their stand, let me know so I can give a other show listeners a heads up on, on where to head to get that. A congratulations and a shout out to Ned Dawson and the team at Heliops Magazine. They have just released their 100th issue of the magazine, which again is a pretty fair effort. And a bit of trivia for you and something that you can play along at home with. The stats system that I use for the podcast now says that we have listeners in 118 countries, which you know blows me away sitting here in Brisbane in Australia. So thank you for everyone that has shared the show with someone that you know. And this is the bit where you get to play along at home for a bit of fun. If there is anyone you know in the following countries that you can share the show with, have a think about it. So Iran, South or North Korea, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, Bolivia, Paraguay, and Tanzania. And look, it's no big deal, but it would be interesting just to see how far our collective networks can reach around the globe. In episode 39, Pete Gillies shared how he got started in the, the world of helicopters. And we had a competition where you could share your own story and go into the draw to win a, a custom drawing from aviation artist Mark Wienendahl. Well, we have a, a winner. And I used random.org to make the draw. And a couple of the entries came in after the cutoff date. And there's a couple there that didn't talk about their first helicopter experience. So just to keep it fair, I had to discount a couple of those. If you find out who the winner is, you'll have to stick around to the end of today's interview. We're about to hear from David Blackwell, the CEO of SpiderTrax. SpiderTrax is a New Zealand company that provides real-time tracking solutions, predominantly for the general aviation market. They've clocked up over 5 million flight hours of flight following since 2007 and have their products in 99 countries around the world. Dave was a managing director of a U.S. freight business for seven years, and he went back and formalized his qualifications with an engineering degree back in New Zealand, and then became operations manager, then chief operating officer, and now CEO of Spider Tracks. 
I've been trying to corner Dave since before Christmas as we use Spinotrax unit here in Brisbane with Aeropower. So I was keen to get to know a little bit more about the background of it. Dave has been glow popping a, a number of times since then to Africa and the US and other places, talking to groups and visiting customers. But we've finally got him back at home in New Zealand and again before he heads off back to the US very shortly for Heli Expo. In this interview, we talk obviously about the Spidertracks product, but also about real-time position monitoring in general and the tech that goes in behind it, and how a helicopter crash in New Zealand in 2005 became the kickoff point for the company. Uh, Dave, can you take us through what you know the whole real-time monitoring situation is? What's out there, and how does it all sort of tie in? Yeah, sure. So what is it? Um, you know, this term situational awareness is, is something that uh, gets brandished around quite a lot, and really that's that's the cornerstone of what it is. It gives you situational awareness, which is knowing where, where your things are, basically. And you know, then the real-time element of that is knowing where they are now, and now, and now. And you know, we were this time two weeks back, three months ago. So just sort of having that visibility. And you know, in 2016, to have this information... You know, available on, on every desktop in your home or in your office, in your hip pocket on mobile devices is a real affordable reality. It's it's no longer a luxury by any means. And what's the range of customers out there in terms of, we'll talk in detail about Spiretracks down the track, but, you know, obviously broader industries and then narrowing down into, into the helicopter field. Who's picking this sort of stuff up? Look, there's been a number, um, huge, huge range of customers across the world. We're, you know, we're tracking close on 5,000 aircraft now, uh, in a hundred countries, um, and we're doing that across a range of uh, applications. So, you know, both fixed wing and rotary wing, and then just by industry type as well. So, you know, a lot of uh, recreational pilots, uh, fire operators, tour operators, uh, news choppers, airborne law enforcement, mining and exploration, flight training, uh, as well as as charter and and some scheduled air transport as well. There's a couple of enablers coming together too. Like it's sort of like the self-driving car type thing, but you've got now like a heap of data infrastructure in terms of actually getting data around. Electronics are, mm-hmm. are kind of shrinking. Have you have you got any kind of idea of what the the growth rate is at the moment? Look, it's I mean it's no longer a new technology. You know, back in you know, 2006, 2007, there were you know a number of us that kind of come on the scene around that time as as that technology uh, enablers become available. Uh, you know, the market requirement was was there as well. Uh, so, you know, I mean, the growth is is probably slowing a little bit in terms of you know of that core functionality of the that's not on the map. You know, here's here's my asset. Here it is now. There's still a decent amount of runway left in front of us when it comes to that. But I think you know, moving forward, there's a lot of opportunities to to do more with the data and with the customers that we already have in terms of you know providing higher value services and insight into their businesses with that data that we already have and it's coming off the aircraft. The install base so must be growing rapidly though. Like I'm thinking, you know, bus bus fleets, obviously we're talking helicopters here, but, you know, bus fleets, ships, aviation, any kind of company with a, a movable asset must be starting to, to think about this real-time monitoring. Sure, yeah, and, and absolutely. I mean, the the, the desire to uh, know where your assets are in, in this day and age is, is huge. I mean, it's almost become expected. and you know, you can track anything from <laughs> human beings, animals, um, you know, aircraft, trucks, 
marine-based assets, any number of things. And look, there are uh, certainly a huge number of tracking providers and products and services that are available. For spider tracks, we have, we've always remained in the, we came to be within aviation. And that is, you know, where we've sort of become very focused. You know, we're not trying to, to be everything to everybody, so to speak. So our defined market is general aviation. So both recreational and commercial, but more general aviation as opposed to, you know, scheduled airlines. And certainly, you know, we do a little bit of ground-based assets, but generally if we have ground-based component, there will also be an aviation component as well. You know, for example, we, you know, we might have 15, 20 aircraft and a a handful of um, fuel tankers, for example, that, that go along with that. What's the weirdest, like when you get customer feedback and you're out talking to people, what's, what's the weirdest thing someone's used Spider-Tracks for? Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's a difficult one. Look, I'm, I'm not sure, right? I think I'm, I'm kind of stumped on that one. Maybe we'll come back to that. <laughs> no, no dramas. All right, let's talk about how it all started. And I guess just from previous articles I've read, you know, it was more a safety case rather than a business case. But yeah, how did you get, how's the idea come up with? How did you guys get involved? Sure. Yeah. You know, it most certainly was a safety case, but it's uh, you know it's become a business case over the years. So it was back in November 2005. So just gone 10 years ago now. Really high-profile helicopter accident here in New Zealand. A gentleman by the name of uh, Michael Ursig, uh, so billionaire businessman and liquor baron, was flying an EC120 uh, from Auckland up in our North Island to Queenstown in the Deep South. Um, he set out, that was somewhere around a seven-hour planned flight, I believe. He left 10 a.m. in the morning, um, had a couple of scheduled stops along the way, and someone was holding a SAR time at the other end for around about 5 p.m. So about an hour into that flight, or, or less even, Michael ran into trouble with the weather. Um, weather closed in on when IMC. He continued on his, his path. The ground began to rise and ended up crashing the machine. And it went down into a very small patch of bushes and, and an otherwise reasonably open space. But when it went, um, when it was swallowed up by the canopy, it broke off the ELT antenna. And of course, the ELT did not fire. So there he lay. And that was, you know, 10, 30, 11 a.m. in the morning. Of course, you know, 5 p.m. came and went at the other end and Michael didn't show up. So six, seven hours after the event actually occurred, just then people were starting to go, okay, what's going on here? We better contact the RCC. Uh, so with, with nightfall coming in and absolutely no idea of where to even start that search, the RCC launched a, a search and rescue effort. So what came from that was probably one of the most inefficient um, search and rescue efforts that we've seen here in New Zealand. It went on for 15 days. Um, they scoured something like 16,000 square kilometres of the countryside. Um, and of course, they you know they finally found them you know 100 miles down um, you know from the origin. So well, to put his family through you know living hell while they wondered every day was he still alive? What had happened? Cost our taxpayer upward of a million dollars, and yeah, just generally gobsmacked the the public in general. And James McCarthy, who is our was our product innovator and, and one of the founding shareholders of the company was a young engineer at the time, and he was working for um, a helicopter pilot. And of course, this guy's wife said, look, you know, that's not going to happen to you. Um, <laughs> you better get, better get this young fella on to uh, finding out something that will work for you. So what James did is sort of scoured around the market and found out that really at that time there was nothing that was 
really cost effective or appropriate and simple to just put on the dash of a Robbie or an EC120 or something like that. So uh, he and a bunch of other guys set about putting something together. And that was the first product. So what they came up with was what we call the, the Spider, it's a piece of hardware. So it's essentially just a GPS receiver and an Iridium uh, transceiver, an Iridium modem. So it received its GPS coordinates, bundled up a data point of where it was, and then it fired that out through the Iridium network, um, and then displayed that on a on a web-based application. So that was how that all began, and that was in 2006. I believe the company was formed in early 2007, and yeah, the rest is history. We've uh, gone and leaps and bounds from there. What was the original take-up like? Uh, you know, to how long did it take to sell a let's say the first hundred units? Look, it was very quickly adopted, particularly here in New Zealand and in Australia. Originally, by the the rec market took onto it very quickly. We were, you know, we were given a lot of support in the early days from Airways New Zealand, who uh, subsidised the the plans for operators that, that had spider tracks. Uh, they subsidised the plans for them, which was great support. gave us gave us a boost as well. Um, so, look, the first first couple of hundred units uh, went out the door reasonably quickly. I've seen a video in LinkedIn, the internet company's headquarters. They've got a, a big projector up, I think, in the, in the foyer. And the, the map spins around every time, you know, a pin appears every time someone new has a, a LinkedIn account created. Do you guys have a, like a, a global map of where all the units are actively flying? Yeah, we run a heat map. Um, it's, it's not something that's on public display, but we have that in our office. We have a heat map of you know, all the, the position reports that we're sending around the world so you can see the concentration of them. It's quite impressive, yeah. Is that fairly mesmerising? Just to see, you know, that, that, that product that you've got based out of, you know, the office there and then seeing that on the on the globe and, and having it move around. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, and in terms of company, we'll get into the, the product and how it works, I guess, in a bit more detail, but, you know, scale and scope and, and staff and things like that, obviously headquartered in, in New Zealand, uh, other offices? Yeah, so we're headquartered in Auckland, New Zealand. Um, that's where our core team is. And we have a subsidiary company in the US, uh, so Spider Tracks North American Limited. And that's that mainly is a more of a sales and marketing function for us. So our core team is here. We have 13 people here in Auckland. We have another half a dozen around the world, which are sort of more in a sales and marketing type roles across the Americas, really, you know, US, Mexico, and uh, South America. All right, David, I'll include a heap of features on the blog post for this one too. Can you describe, though, if someone's going to pick up, open the box up and hold the spider tracks in their hand, what are they looking at in terms of the actual component pieces? Sure. So what, what you'd be looking at is a, a small, very small form tank that fits in the palm of your hand, probably looks similar to, uh, or certainly similar in size to an old radar detector, weighs about 300-odd grams. It is a plug-and-play solution out of the box. Uh, so it's powered by an auxiliary power lead or it comes with an auxiliary power lead. Um, has an adhesive bracket, which you pop up under the glare shields. It's just a matter of finding an appropriate spot in the aircraft to mount it. Uh, mount your bracket up on under the glare shield there, slide the spider into it, and plug it into a 12-volt uh, auxiliary outlet, and off you go. Okay, and configuration-wise, and so each one comes out of the factory configured like serial numbered for that for that item and you plug basically as soon as power is applied it's connecting to the satellite network yeah so it's um it's an iridium product so it has an iridium modem in it which has an imei number so we have a serial number and an imei number on the unit you know which we correlate back on our end 
for each unit that you have, you need to set that up on our uh, website. So you subscribe on the website, um, set it up, configure it how you want it to report um, the aircraft that you've got it assigned to and, and various other features. And then we, we make sure that that is active on the network. And then when that data comes through to us, we we correlate that back to the uh, the end user and uh, and display it on you know, web-based and mobile applications. You mentioned the Iridium satellite a couple of times, and obviously most parts are going to be familiar with the you know, GPS uh, network. Mm. Just a, you know, a really quick intro to the Iridium satellite network. Um, sure. Yeah, so Iridium is a, a low-Earth orbiting LEO network. Um, it consists of 66 satellites, so there's six planes with 11 in each. Um, it is the only network that enables pole-to-pole coverage. So at any one time, there is always a satellite um, within view. Um, they take 100 minutes to orbit the Earth, so there's one coming on and off the horizon about every nine minutes. Something that's quite unique about the Iridium network as well is what they call cross-linking. So you don't have to wait. That information doesn't sit on the satellite until the satellite itself gets in range of a ground station. The, the network acts as a constellation that will hand off the data as they honk across the sky and find the fastest path back to a ground station. So it's a very, very low latency network. The average time to get data off the aircraft from, from the time it attempts to send that through to us receiving it and displaying it, it's around about 15 to 20 seconds. Um, so, yeah, it is, it is very, very low latency and it's very robust and highly available network. And, you know, that makes it quite appropriate uh, for, for use in aviation and, and safety services. Off topic, is there like a backup GPS feature, like built into the Iridium system, is there any kind of position finding or that's all done on, on the GPS system? Yeah, no, it is all done on the GPS system, on the device itself. Okay. Actual um, case studies or stories, if you come back, have you got a couple you can share about, you know, someone took off, they had the, the spider tracker, they landed in the bush for short of fuel or whatever it is, and then people come straight to them, or you know there was a crash. Uh, yeah, is there any, any sort of stories sure. that, that jump out at you? Yeah, look, there's, there's been a number of them over the years, and one that comes to mind, I'll actually I'll send you the, um, the article because it's a really interesting read. Maybe you could post it on your website. Yeah. Southeast Alaska in 2013, a charter, charter flight. There was a, a cruise ship in port, Charter flight was picking up passengers, taking them northbound somewhere. Not, not exactly sure where they were going, but it was not a great day. Um, it was drizzly, cloudy. Uh, the ceiling was around about 1,500 feet. Um, they had seven packs on board, and they took off around 3.30 in the afternoon. Uh, of course, the pilot went, you know, Alaskan bush pilots were reasonably comfortable in those types of conditions, but off he went and went past a, a regular waypoint and, Gave it a little bit of flat and lifted his nose and went into an 80-knot climb, which gave him even less visibility. Next minute, he looks out the window and there was a whole lot of trees in front of him. Um, he put the aircraft into a tight bank, but you know, inevitably crashed. It was a float plane, so you know, quite a lot of um, stuff on the outside to break the fall as it went down through the trees, which, which could well have um, you know, contributed to minimising the impact for those inside. Anyway. Um, that was around 4.30 p.m., so coming on darkness again there in Alaska. So the, both the ELT and the spider tracks went off at the same time, which you know, gave real sufficiency that there was definitely something going on. Um, and, of course, they were able to get straight to it. And it is a really interesting thing because they talk about the, the conditions there in Alaska. 
um, there was one fatality uh, in that accident, and that was may or may not have been, you know, due to the impact itself. They they talk about pre-existing medical conditions, but um, essentially that was a success uh, story. They they were able to get in there and get them out before darkness came, and they talk about you know if, if they had not been able to do that and they were stuck in there overnight, that the the chance of survival would have been significantly less. What about in accident investigation? Because obviously it keeps a, a plot of you know where that flight's been for the entire flight that it's been uploading. Are you seeing accident investigations pulling that information then to determine what happened? Look, we haven't really come up against it yet. We've it's interesting. You know, we've had a couple of cases where uh, it hasn't been an accident, but then an operator's been under investigation. Um, you know, by the by the local authorities, and and they're aware of the fact that there's a some type of device on board. Um, That's a really, really good point that you raised there because, you know, it's important to understand, particularly for the operators, that, you know, that that information is actually your information. We don't own it. We house it and we house it in a secure environment and we we, we have privacy policies around it. Um, So we don't ever give that information out to the authorities. We're not trying to be uncooperative in that. You know, we just respect the privacy uh, of our customers. So in those types of cases, you know, we've, if we get approached by the authorities, we go to the customer and we say, hey, look, you know, we've had this request. Are you willing for us to share this information or not? Um, in some cases, uh, they have. In other cases, uh, the operator hasn't, um, in which case we, you know, we, we don't hand that on. Um, and then it, you know, it comes down to, um, you know, the authorities actually showing up with, uh, with a court order to retrieve that information. I guess it's, it's getting off scope too, but there's a data stored in New Zealand or like you hear a lot of the US sort of um, you know, subpoena laws and things like that, but uh, where's your data center? Yeah, so it gets reasonably complex. You know, So we're a New Zealand company and the data's sitting on a server bank in the US um, you know, and sometimes the, the, the aviation authorities in another country as well. So yep. it, a lot of moving parts when it comes to that. Okay. Well, let's jump into the, the pilot side of things then. Um, you're flying along. It's a really minimalistic interface. We've actually got, as I said uh, before we were chatting, we've got one on the machine here that we fly. But I don't think I've ever pushed a, a button on it, um, which obviously you know, is a good thing. I haven't got in trouble. But uh, can you run us through what the actual interface is on the, on the box? Sure. Yeah, look, it's, it's very simple. And you know, simplicity is something that we... Is a core value of ours. Um, you know, everything we do, we'll we'll always challenge each other. Is it simple? Does it make sense? Um, and look, as you know, those of you that are flying the aircraft, the last thing you want to be doing is trying to work out what you need to do to to operate your spider tracks unit. So look, essentially, it just works. There is an interface. There are three buttons on the interface. Um, there is an SOS button, uh, a button that's labelled Watch, and then another button that is labelled Mark. Now, you can interact with those, but you, there's no requirement for you to do so. So in its simplest form, it just sits up there and pings away with absolutely no interaction from the pilot whatsoever. Starting from left to right as you come across it, though, so SOS button, as it sounds, uh, if you run into trouble, you can press SOS. That drives the unit into a distress state immediately. We have other ways, other, I'll talk about that here in a little bit, I guess, of getting into a distress state. But that immediately puts you in that, and that'll send out a you know notifications to your support network that has been configured within the website itself. The next button is watch. So watch is a mode of tracking. Uh, now we have two modes of tracking, normal tracking and watch tracking. So watch is more of, I guess, active and passive. That's probably a decent way of pitching it. So in passive tracking or normal tracking mode, the device will 
send its position reports uh, and other information back to the website according to however it has been configured. I mean, if someone is, and it'll do that in real time, it'll populate the track in real time. And if somebody's sitting on the other end watching that, that's, that's all well and good. If something untoward was to happen, there's no real mechanism that brings that to anybody's attention unless someone else in at the other end sort of watching it point by point and say, hey, this thing stopped moving. Or, or of course, you know, the start time expires, you know, in a traditional sense. Watch mode, on the other hand, is a active tracking mode. So if you're in watch mode, that is a feature that we have where our system actively tracks an aircraft. So we are expecting to receive position reports from it and we will continue to actively monitor it until we receive a watch-off um, message from the unit. So that's a conscious button press by the pilot when he lands to say, yeah, I'm here, I'm on the ground, deactivate the, the active system. And when you say so someone's going it, to, yeah, sorry, when, when you say that someone's going to monitor that, is that then a, like a spider tracks staff get an alert that a, that a unit's in watch mode or, yeah. It's no, like, no, no, so it's a fully, it's a fully automated system. It's an automated flight following system. Yep. Um, so one thing that the, the user does on his end when he's configuring the account and the organization settings is to set up, um, a, it's a, we provide an emergency management framework comes as a core part of the system. So what we have is, is this two-tiered network. So you set up tier one and tier two alerts, tier, uh, tier one and tier two contacts. And we recommend that you know you have at least one of each. Um, your tier one level is sort of intended to filter out noise. You know, if, if there's a false alert or somebody turns the unit off and forgets to press the, the watch button. The tier two is, again, we're not saying something's happened. We're saying, hey, look, there's cause for concern. Yeah. There's, there's reason to go and have a look at what's going on here. So yeah, it's just it's early insight, early notification, and, and these are tools that we provide to the operator. We don't actually monitor them ourselves. Okay, so Dave, so back on the watch feature then, can you just give me a scenario then? So I'm, I'm flying down a canyon, the weather's closing in, and I'm, I'm getting concerned. I'm going to switch it to watch mode, or what sort of, you know? Yep, no, you, you can do that. So there are, there are two ways to activate watch mode. So we have a manual button press, which is exactly as you said, you know, you're starting to get uncomfortable and you say, hey, I'm going to put this thing in watch mode and, and have two hands on the stick. Um, or you can set it up as a reporting type. So you can set up automated watch in the website as a reporting type, and that comes with a speed trigger to activate. So it gets a little bit more difficult in a rotary wing situation, but it's quite simple. With, in fixed wing, a lot of people will just set it at 40 knots as a threshold. So when the aircraft goes through 40 knots, it will automatically activate that watch mode. When you get to the other end, you do, do still need to manually disable it. So it's, uh, it can be auto on, but auto on or manual on, but it's uh, always a manual button press to, to turn it off. Okay, and if I, I land, I shut back down, walk away from the machine, and I forget to, to cancel the watch, um, mm-hmm. is there a, does it trigger on a t- those tier one, tier two? I guess this is where it comes to be configurable, but is it trigger on a, on a certain time or uh, when power is removed? Yeah, so- yeah, so, so there's a 10-minute time buffer at our end. So if we every time we receive a position report, we say, okay, now we set a timer for 10 minutes. Um, and if, if we don't receive another position report when that time expires, then we launch a Tier 1 uh, alert that will go out to, again, to you know, however it's configured within the website. Okay, and especially because it's a helicopter audience then. So as you said, like it's not practical to set below 40 knots for a helicopter because you're coming in for a... You know, taking a photo or uh, doing a power line work or something like that. So, is there a G 
like an inertial G meter in there. What's gonna What's gonna trigger that alert if you're flying along in a helicopter and for, and you have a crash? You know. Well, uh, look, it's still going to trigger in the same way. What I was talking about is it's a little bit more difficult to infer a takeoff based on speed alone. That said, we have a number of operators that are using it, using it very successfully. They generally set it around 15 or 20 knots. Once it's on, it's on. That's um, just a, an automated way of turning it on. And once again, once it's on, it is on until the pilot consciously disables it. So, look, it works very well in, in a rotary wing uh, situation as well. Okay. I guess before we leave the, the unit itself and start talking about the back end, is, is there anything else about... Oh, sorry, the, the mark feature. Can you talk us through how that works? Sure. So, yeah, the mark button is, is more a point of interest. So um, within the website, you have the ability to set up sort of one-way macro-type messages that are associated with that button press. Uh, so some things that we see are, you know, need fuel on landing. You know, so the pilot maybe 10 minutes out, we'll just press that, one, that button once. Extend start time is another one that we see uh, reasonably frequently. Any number of, of messages, and again, it's highly customizable to to whatever your um, you know the requirements of your business. When you're then looking at that on the map, so you've come back after a flight, can you tell on your flight route where you've pressed that mark button? So you can actually be flying over a feature and, and you know mark your, your position overhead. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's the purpose of it. So it's sort of a point of it can be a point of interest or it can be just to, you know, for the purpose of delivering a one-way uh, message back to the ops room, or it can just be like, hey, that was really interesting. Bang, I'll drop a pin on the map, uh, and then come back and look at it uh, after the fact. Yeah, absolutely. We have um, actually a really great application with our product in Africa, organisation called African Parks, that's non-profit, and they patrol a number of parks around Africa, and obviously uh, chasing down poachers and, and spotting wildlife and what have you. So they they use that uh, reasonably frequently in, in that capacity as well. Okay. Is there anything else we need to know about the unit and using it in the cockpit? Otherwise, we'll shift to, I guess, the back end and what you could use as far as an operations setup. Yeah, no, look, probably not, uh, Nick. It's, like I say, it's reasonably simple. It's, um, you know, the whole, whole idea of it is that it sits up there and reasonably uh, unobtrusively and, and just does its thing. Um, if you need to interact with it, you can. If if you don't, um, you know, it's, it's sitting there doing its thing while, while you do your thing, so to speak. Okay, so that's the pilot covered. Uh, in terms of operation staff and, and I guess, on the business side, so there's an iPhone mm-hmm. app, there's a, a web interface, uh, and essentially you log in and whatever units are attached to your account, you then see them real-time on the map with a, a trail of where they've been for the last, you know, well, their, their flight track. Is that essentially how it kind of looks? Yeah, it's, that's essentially it. Yeah, when you when you first log in, you'll come to your dashboard page. That's um, sort of a quick overview of um, any aircraft that you have visibility of. So it might might not be limited to your own organisation. You might have visibility of you know three aircraft in a in a sister company, for example, and a certain segment of aircraft in this company, and maybe a couple from somewhere else for whatever reason. So it's all the aircraft that you have been given visibility of. When you log in as a user, you'll get that on your dashboard. So just a, a, a quick operational tool. You know, if you want to go, hey, is everything in order? Is everyone where I expect them to be? Are they all flying? Um, you can see that very quickly. Then if you wish to start, you know, picking down into it and getting a little bit more granular, you can. You can start looking, you know, aircraft by aircraft and, and essentially down to, to point by point if the, if the need arises. Have you had much feedback about insurance rebates? I don't know if you, you talk to insurance companies and things like that, but... Having one of these in the machine, can you then get a, a discount on your on your premium? 
you know what, maybe, maybe we should revisit it again. We we did so a few years ago and we didn't really get a whole lot of traction, which was kind of disappointing. We did, we were approaching it, you know, in the early days we kind of, you know, saw the, the potential in the system for being more of an ELT replacement than, than what it has become, I guess. And, you know, so back in that era, uh, there were a lot of discussions that went on with insurance companies. It was more around life insurance at that time. And, yeah, no, we didn't didn't get a lot of traction with people. It's just, you know, again, it's reasonably disappointing, but but it is what it is. Moving forward, and, and I, I don't know this for sure, but it seems intuitive that there will be insurance benefits. When you start looking at the real capabilities of these systems, beyond just being the dot on the map and, and here's my asset, you know, more and more it's becoming uh, not just where, where my aircraft is, but what's it doing, how's it flying. Our latest hardware, you know, have those capabilities on board. Uh, we have a nine axis IMU that we can, you know, get a pretty good snapshot of of what the aircraft is actually doing as well as where it is. So there's a lot of potential there to deliver deliver value, I guess, into the to the SMS space and the safety management systems, which is uh, you know the, the becoming quite widely adopted uh, in aviation businesses. And it seems again, it seems intuitive that you have a risk profile, and those that have a a lower risk profile will be subject to uh, essentially the lower insurance premiums. With online services, like it seems more and more they talk about um, programming API uh, interfaces and where different platforms can talk to each other, and, and sort of then a you know third party app sort of environment mm-hmm. building up around things. Are you seeing that sort of stuff happening? Is there third party apps, or is there other hardware that then connects into spider tracks to you know piggyback the the data capability? Uh, is there things like that coming along? Yeah, absolutely, and and has been for some time, and and like you say, that's certainly a trend. There'll be there'll be more and more of that if we move forward, and and we sort of, you know, when we look at at uh, releasing features, we always said, you know, will we do that ourselves, or are we best to, to partner with somebody and bundle that up and and just push it through an integration? Some practical applications of the API that have been in place for years now, are, you know, familiar with you guys over there, will be with NAFC, the National Aerial Firefighting Center. We they have. Um, they have an integration with us, so they had our API and they pull that raw tracking data um, back out through the back door and then they post-process that, as they do with other tracking providers as well, and then they bring that all into one environment um, and display it on one screen. So we get a lot of a lot of cases like that, like I say, NAFC in Australia, US Forest Service in the United States, and a number of government contractors. Um, it's, it's quite a common practice um, and often a requirement um, to to have that API and be able to push that data through the back door. Okay, and what about on the aircraft side? Like some of these new machines, like you know, essentially flying computers, and you know, every single, you know, whether it's your rotor speed or the the engine parameters or anything like that, often gets fed into some kind of computer in, in, on board. Is it then looking at like a, a back to base, you know, engine monitoring or or limit monitoring and things like that? We're not we're not in that space right now. It's a really good question. No, we sort of looked at it and go, you know, what what. To what level do we want to get involved with this and what information do people actually want? Just because you can get something doesn't really mean that you want it and you need it. And then, of course, you know, are you willing to, do you need it in real time and are you willing to pay for that? And what we've found a lot of the time is, is it's actually not the case. So we're looking to probably get into a little bit more of that, getting some flight data off the aircraft, but we'll try and do it in the way that we've always done things, try and keep it pretty simple, if at all possible, not be actually connected to the aircraft systems itself that you know gives rise to a to a whole new tier of, of complexity and certification. But you know, just for, again with this components that we've got on board, this new hardware, we're actually able to infer a decent amount of information about the airframe, not the engine itself, but certainly the airframe, 
uh, just through the unit itself. So there are some features that um, that we've got in our quite short-term uh, development pipeline. All right, can you talk about that pipeline line in like the next couple of years? What sort of, you know, feature, I don't know if you can talk about different features that are coming online, but I'm thinking about, and again, the cost, I don't know what the cost is for the, the data connection to the satellites, but, you know, whether if you're in a, in a 4G city area, whether the unit could fall back to, you know, like another data service. Is there things like that? Sure. Yeah, look, I, I don't know. Again, it's, it's a good question. Do we do that? We haven't. We've always been satellite-based. We've, and our position on that is that it's been really the only robust, you know, we are a safety provider and we're a safety provider in aviation and, and it's the only really robust uh, channel um, is through the Iridium Satellite Network. The certainly products that, that we've seen in the past, and, and to be fair, this may have been overcome, you know, in, in 2016, but we've seen some issues with the dual mode uh, products, switching between satellite and GSM. A couple of, of instances we've heard about is, around performance issues when that signal gets low it'll switch over to satellite and it'll get a bar of service back and it'll jump back to GSM and then it'll drop it and it'll go back and net, 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 you can end up sitting there toggling from one mode to the other without actually transmitting anything so there we've heard about some performance issues again they, they may well have been overcome uh, in 2016 but but that was a factor here a while ago but you know look for, for us it's We'll always have that core product, you know, regardless of the channel, is it 4G, is it, is it through satellite? We'll always have that core product, which is uh, that providing that real-time situational awareness. And look, I think moving forward, it is more, not so much about what the widget by widget, what the products are going to be, but certainly the direction we're taking is moving more into that, becoming an, an operational management uh, software and services for aviation, I think would be fair to say, on a, on a three to five-year horizon. Um, and you know, I talked previously about you know some short-term potential and and being able to uh, deliver value into that those safety management system space and those types of things. So that's kind of where we're at um, right now. Okay, and before we'll get folks where they can go and get some more information and things like that, but is there anything else, any other tips or feedback or when you're out and about, you obviously you know you, you travel the world. It's taken a while to to get you in one spot because you're you're definitely tripping around. But uh, while you've got a, I guess a platform with a, a helicopter sort of audience, is there anything you want to you know basically pass on either about real time tracking or about spider tracks or about you you're tripping around the world that would be of interest. Sure. Look, I think if there was one thing, it was it would be it doesn't have to be complicated. You know, we we often people, you know, you'll get in front of them and go, "Wow, I didn't realise it did that. I didn't realise it had those capabilities." And and it really doesn't have to be as complicated as a lot of the solutions might be perceived to be out there. You know, and, and again, it, it depends on what your requirements are. What do you actually need to have versus what what can you have? Um, you know, there are some really high-end systems around that can deliver you all sorts of information and, and cost a ton of money. Or, you know, there are some systems around, and Spider Tracks is, is certainly one of them. There are others as well uh, that, you know, provide what you need for a good price. Uh, you know, essentially provide a decent amount of value for, for a pretty cost-effective price. Okay, and contact details for the company. How can folks come and uh, track you guys down for questions? Uh, probably the best hit is, is www.spidertracks.com. Perfect, and, and I think uh, you come come in from there. And yeah, I think you've got a Facebook page there, and I know uh, Todd, the marketing manager there, with you guys too, who's uh, very responsive too. So, um, look, Dave, thank you very much for yeah, telling us a bit about the the backstory and a bit about the, the company and the applications, and uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, no, no problem, mate. It was my pleasure. 
that was Dave Blackwell, CEO of SpiderTracks. SpiderTracks team will be at Heli Expo coming up shortly. And as I said, we use a product here in Brisbane and, and more and more so uh, also as a student debriefing tool where we can pull up the route and sit there and discuss the, the flight and uh, debrief that way. A brand new feature which will be formally announced about the same time as this episode goes to air is SpiderText. And this allows you to send messages backwards and forwards between your smartphone in the helicopter and the SpiderTracks web-hosted dashboard back at your operational base. And it's using the SpiderTracks units, a satellite update link. So this might not be a big deal in the US and, and parts of Europe where you've got great coverage. But in Australia, PNG, Africa, Alaska, and, and heaps of other places where there's no phone coverage, it's going to give you a, a chance to be able to you know, text backwards and forwards uh, using the, the uplink and the satellite connection through SpiderTracks. That's pretty cool. On that, if you're curious about mobile phone coverage in the area that you're flying or in another country that you're going to be heading towards, I found a really cool website and they have a, a companion app for your phone as well. It's called opensignal.com. That overlays mobile phone coverage on a Google map that covers the different companies in different countries. And it's really quite interesting to scroll around and have a look, for instance, that you know, in Thailand, most of Thailand has mobile coverage then. As soon as you hit the border and go out to many of its neighbors, it drops right off. And in Western Europe, you would actually have to try pretty hard to be outside of mobile coverage. And then if you jump over and have a look at Australia, you'll just see again, you know, Australia is a big place and the mobile coverage is definitely focused in on where the, the population centers are. Okay, now it's time to announce the, the winner of the aviation uh, competition. The winner is Kayla Segestrom Perez from Texas in the US. Her dad is a dual rated CFI and taught Kayla's two brothers to fly helicopters with Kayla to finish her training sometime soon as well. Her first helicopter ride was in a Hiller 12C that her dad still owns. And Kayla is the owner of an aviation industry marketing and airshow production company called Rotorwash Media. So Mark Fienendale will be drawing out a picture of a Hiller 12C for Kayla, and we'll organize to get that mailed across to Texas. I'll put a photo of the drawing up on the blog post for this episode, episode 42 at rotarywingshow.com and link there see where you can get more of Mark's work. So a big congratulations to Kayla and again thank you to Mark for donating the drawing and for everyone that left a comment. There are some really great stories there that people shared and it's well worth heading over and having a look and reading through them if you haven't already at the bottom of episode 39 just to again you know get an idea of different people's backgrounds where they're listening to the show and, and what their experience has been in the helicopter industry. Today's episode is sponsored by trainmorepilots.com, where you can get some online marketing tips for your flight school or aviation company. And a quick tip to share with you today is about adding captions to your photos in Instagram. If you are marketing your company on Instagram, you might have run into the problem of how to add paragraph spaces or line breaks in your text captions. You might have seen those in other people's posts and wondered, you know, how do they actually go out and do that? Well, wonder no more. You can't actually add a line break or new paragraph space in the Instagram app itself. If you create your caption in the Facebook app or some other notes or text app on your phone and put the line spaces and the paragraph gaps in there and then copy and paste that into your Instagram app, that's the way you actually get the, the text formatting to show up in Instagram. So give that a go. Have you signed up for the list of the top 10 helicopter books on the show website and not been able to find the PDF? 
The download link is on the thank you page, but if you left your email address and couldn't find the, the copy, uh, please email me at feedback at rotarywingshow.com and I'll fix you up with that. In Australian news, we have Rotatech 2016 details starting to come out now. This is the expo organized by the Australian Helicopter Industry Association. In 2016, it's going to be held at Twin Waters Resort on Sunshine Coast in Queensland between May 26 and 27, and they are billing it as the largest helicopter trade show in the Southern Hemisphere. And unlike pretty much every other helicopter event in the world, this one is going to be just down the road from me, so I'll actually leave you out to get to this one. The team from Tracks will also be there, and I told you, you know, they get around these guys. And you can Google Rotatech 2016 for more details or check your normal helicopter forums for the updates. Next episode, we'll be talking about the new Bell 525 Relentless and getting a rundown of some of the design features and the story that goes into its development. So join me for that one. I've been your host, Mick Carlin. Thanks for listening in again. This has been episode 42 of the Rotary Wing Show. Make it a great week.